Welcome to Hometown, the podcast that explores how where we live influences who we are. I'm your host, Tola Martz. This is the first Hometown podcast, and I'm really excited. I've never done a podcast before, but I've been an elected official for about 11 years, so I've got some experience being in front of a microphone. Linguists tell us that the English language is really a small core of Germanic words surrounded by a big body of French words. And this comes from the fact that in 1066, at the Battle of Hastings, the English people basically swapped out German invader kings for French Viking invader kings, and so switched from German as the official language, or German base languages, to French base language. Likewise, in architecture, you see this same phenomena. So I live in Washington state and pretty much everything here, nothing is more than about a hundred years old. But when you get to some really older places like uh, upstate New York, where I lived for a while, you find places, houses that are maybe 400 years old and rural England, you may have 600 years old homes and you get, you know, the heart of the house that's really ancient. And then you have more modern wings that are built onto it. So the question really is, are people like this? Do we carry the scent or spark of a place and then build up veneer upon veneer from our travels? Or are we really truly ephemeral? Do we succumb to the myth of permanence? Are we not in fact the stream, but rather the ripple in the stream or the bend in the river? We're going to explore self and place in this podcast. We're going to talk to people about where they've lived and what it means to them, what they carry with them going forward. As we move forward talking to folks, we'll start delving into specific areas. What's it like to move somewhere and not have it stick, to have to leave defeated? What's it like to be from somewhere but have it be a mess of unhappy memories, a place from which you escape? Do we start at home and venture into the big blue world? Or do we start somewhere as an accident of geography and then spend a decade or two in search of home? Before we start, a couple of comments. First, a note about length. This first interview is almost an hour and a half long. Several people told me, cut it down or split it into two parts. But I believe a story takes as long to tell as it takes. Some of these interviews may only be a half hour. Some might be a lot longer. Second, an apology. I'm new to podcasting, and while I'm really happy with the content of the first interview, the audio quality is terrible. And about 20 minutes in, you'll start to hear a lot more ums and ahs. That's where I realized that I was never going to get this podcast out if I kept polishing the Audacity sound file until the end of time. So if anyone wants to be a volunteer sound editor, by all means, drop me a line. So, without further ado... Let's dig in. Our guest today is Mark Bromberg. Uh, Joe and Betty Bromberg had five kids in Elmira, New York. They had a daughter, uh, my mother, Joan Bromberg, uh, three sons, of which Mark is the youngest of the three, and uh, another daughter. And it's interesting because all five Bromberg kids all moved away from Elmira. And so one of the things I want to talk to Mark about today is that phenomenon of everybody left and occasionally people came back uh, upon occasion and for short amounts of time, but nobody really came back in the classic sense of coming back. But 
Mark is also, I should say, uh, a radio person himself. He had a radio show in Atlanta for many years, and he actually interviewed me 40 years ago for his show. Not really for his show, I think really to indulge his 12-year-old nephew. But this is a, a, a wonderful opportunity for me to return the favor in the first episode of my podcast. So, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. You're looking good. Thank you. So we're gonna so we're gonna start off talking about Elmira, and uh, you lived in Elmira for you were born in Elmira and you lived there for how long? Uh, I was in Elmira uh, until I went away to Syracuse University when I was eighteen, and I went to Syracuse for four years and left Central New York. Uh, in uh, 1976, after I graduated from Syracuse. So I was actually in uh, Elmira for the first 18 years of my life. So for people that don't know Elmira, would you, would you consider Elmira a small town, a mid-sized town? Like paint the picture a little bit of what Elmira was like when you were growing up? Sure, when, when I was growing up, which would have been the late 50s into the 60s, uh, Elmira was a pretty thriving town. We had lots of industry. Uh, there were all kinds of uh, heavy heavy industry stuff there, like Bendix had a, uh, uh, had a machine uh, shop there, uh, American La France, the fire extinguisher company. Um, all kinds of uh, uh, industrial uh, corporations were there. And there were 60,000 people there uh, at the time. Um, by the time I left, which had happened, the flood of 1972 had happened and wiped out a lot of the downtown area. And uh, lots of people kind of left for good back in uh, the, the early 1970s and so by the time I left Syracuse to seek my fortune in 1976, the, uh, uh, the population was down to about 40,000. And most recently I checked and the number of uh, residents there is down to 25,000. So it's definitely, people have left the area uh, to uh, move elsewhere. And uh, all the industry seems to have moved away. And it's not the, it's not the thriving town that it used to be when I was there. Uh, so it's, it's one of those things where uh, the money has flowed out uh, and the state government really doesn't seem very interested in putting a lot of money into central New York. And, uh, uh, and so lots of people are just either uh, just scuffling by, or they're retired people. And that seems to be the uh, general tone of the town now. Yeah, one of the things you find with, people talk about the Rust Belt, right? And they talk about yeah. New York and Pennsylvania and Ohio. But it's, it's really, it's, it, it, it varies locally, the impact of, of the Rust Belt. And if you drive along the southern tier of New York State, Corning, which has Dow Corning, is doing great. And Binghamton has SUNY Binghamton or whatever they call it nowadays. And that's supposedly on its way to becoming a premier research institution of the New York State yeah, College. Yeah, yeah. So, but Al Elmira doesn't have that. And so 
yeah, I had read that too. I had noticed that the population has continued to drop. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a funny story. Well, not quite so funny as kind of disheartening. Uh, is that when I was there last, which would have been 2009 now, which is what, uh, 10, 11, 12 years ago now, um, the big deal in Elmira was uh, that there was going to be money coming through, but the choice, the options uh, from the state were two different, two different things. One was uh, there was talk about fracking in central New York, and there were going to be, you know, a digging for gas, natural gas, uh, that was going to bring lots and lots and lots of jobs, um, and a big, big political push in that direction. Uh, or the alternative was to build uh, another uh, another prison there. Now there's already one maximum security prison in Elmira, and when the idea of a second maximum security prison was tossed around, people said, "Great, let's let's think about having a second uh, uh, maximum security prison there." And the governor at the time, it might have been Cuomo in 2009, um, he vetoed the idea of fracking in New York State. So uh, the decision was made to build a second maximum security prison in Elmira, and that's what happened. Those are not wonderful choices, believe me, you know, uh, to bring uh, money in, into Elmira. And it's certainly nothing that I think Elmira prides itself on, but in terms of bringing uh, um, money to town, that was, those were the two choices. And that was when I was there visiting uh, my brother Rick uh, there for those nine months. It became a very important uh, political issue. I have heard that I've driven by the Southport Correctional Facility, and I have heard that they are an innovative uh, institution Criminals there have come up with innovative ways to fling poo at each other. It is the standard form of uh, aggression at Southport Correctional Facility, and they have come up with uh, new and innovative ways to do that. So uh, not really something you put on the, you know how in hotels they have those brochures of each town? You You go out to the front of the hotel and they have like 50 brochures of local places you can visit, you know, the caves or you know, whatever, you know, some famous battle was fought there. Now, that's not really something you put on the brochure for Elmira. <laughs> Great places to visit, you know, uh, what to do when you're there you know, kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. Sure. And if, if for someone who grew up there, uh, uh, you know, in the 50s and 60s, we heard a lot about, you know, this is Elmira was where uh, uh, New York City people came to enjoy their summers. Um, including way back in the day, um, Mark Twain uh, ha- married a, an Elmira uh, uh, woman, um, uh, Olivia Langdon. And so he spent his summers there uh, at Quarry Farm in, in Elmira and uh, wrote Tom Sawyer there uh, in the summertime. And that was in the 1870s. So believe me, by the time 1960s and the 1970s rolled along, and now, you know, in the 21st century, it's, you know, let's build another maximum security prison. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a different way of uh, 
of promoting your town to say, yes, we have two security prisons here. You know, that just seems uh, a long way removed from being a summer resort for uh, a, a class of people that would never think about summering in Elmira ever again. And I have to say, the area is still staggeringly physically beautiful. You and I both have pictures from Harris Hill looking out over the Shimon Valley. And it's, sure. and it's just, to this day, it's beautiful. There's just no jobs. And, and it's, I still, keep... it's still the gateway to the Finger Lakes. You Believe me, you know, once you get past Elmira and go up Route 13 and, you know, head up into the Finger Lakes, you have all that beautiful, all those glacier lakes that, uh, you know, have drawn uh, visitors for, uh, you know, hundreds of years. So, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really wonderfully beautiful area, sure. You know, for 20 years, they've been saying that the economy will, will eventually become such that everyone will be able to live wherever they want and do their job from wherever. And I feel like Elmira keeps waiting for that day to happen. And maybe after COVID, some of that will occur, right? Because if you could live anywhere, you know, you can get a hell of a house for $100,000 in Elmira or even $80,000 in Elmira, which, which, which buys you a shack in Western Washington or buys you an apartment over somebody's garage, maybe. And, and so I feel like any day now, that new, that brave new world will occur and places like the Shimon Valley will, will benefit from it. But Elmira's been waiting for that for a while. But let's, let's talk about you growing up in the 50s and 60s and 70s. So, because it wasn't, it didn't have, it didn't have that feeling then, right? Oh, not at all. It was the, uh, although of course I was much younger, uh, it was definitely uh, uh, enjoying that post World War II boom. Um, as I said, you know, industries were, were there. Uh, everybody had a job. There were 60,000 people there. It was a bustling little metropolis. Uh, and there were, you know, they couldn't build schools fast enough because everybody was having kids and uh, uh, lots of lots of Catholics, lots of uh, the uh, Irish and uh, and the Italians. There were, you know, big pockets of Irish and Italians. Uh, some Polish people were there. Um, and, uh, you know, it was definitely it was, it was a wonderful little place to grow up, I thought, you know, for for being, you know, uh, eight or nine or 10 years old uh, with a with a big family. Uh, it was a, it was a great little place. Uh, uh, Mom and dad had a house in um, uh, West Elmira uh, on Westmont Avenue uh, that had belonged to uh, my grandparents. And so it, it just seemed like something that you did, you know, it's like you and everybody in the neighborhood had like at least two or three kids. So, you know, we were all we were all sort of uh, running around together. Uh, the moms were stay at home moms. Moms didn't work back in the early 60s. You know, the, the dads went off to work and the moms stayed home or uh, had maybe teaching jobs, you know, at the local elementary school. Uh, for a couple hours a day. Uh, but generally, you know, um, the kids all ran around together. We all knew each other. Um, the stay-at-home mothers sort of kept an eye on the neighborhood. It was like the unofficial neighborhood watch. <laughs> Mrs. Quigley would say, 
you know, uh, we saw we saw uh, your youngest, Mark. He, he was over here with uh, so-and-so down at Mr. Snyder's store and da-da-da, and he should have been in school. Uh, well, <laughs> you know, I mean, it was it really was kind of like a neighborhood watch. And that's that's kind of what uh, our little neighborhood was like. Uh, and there was there was a uh, Catholic church, uh, probably about four blocks away, uh, Our Lady of Lourdes uh, on one of the main streets. And I mean, it, it really was this. Uh, I know people say that, you know, ev everybody's childhood usually seems pretty ideal. Uh, but coming out of World War II, uh, Elmira was really booming, and it was uh, uh, a lot of people were there. Everybody seemed pretty happy. Uh, all the cars were brand new cars. I mean, people got people got new Cadillacs and uh, Buicks and uh, Plymouths and Dodges like every couple of years, and uh, uh, there was a lot of money there. So it was. It wasn't anywhere near as uh, uh, dark and uh, uh, sort of on the downside uh, as it is currently, but uh, it was a nice town to live in. So this, the, essentially the center of the universe was like five hours away by car, right? New York City is, let's say, four or five yes, hours away. Exactly. You could, you could get on, you could get on uh, uh, Route 17 and travel down to New York City five hours away, and you know it'd be a whole different universe. Yeah. Did you have any sense growing up in Elmira? Did you feel like it was a small town, or did you feel like, oh man, I I can't wait to get out of this? You know, was it Hicksville, or did it just feel good? Well, as I got older, you know, as you get older into high school and you start doing some of your own exploring, or you're reading a lot. And you and you see that there's a whole other universe out there besides uh, Elmira, New York. Yeah, I definitely wanted to bust out and uh, you know go places and uh, you know explore. And I realized that uh, staying in Elmira, uh, the more education I got, uh, was not going to be an option. You know, I, my standard line once I became an adult was that I could have, if I went back to Elmira, say after graduating from Syracuse University, uh, I would have wound up just on third shift at the bottle factory. There just really was not a lot happening in Elmira to go back to by the mid seventies. So my only option uh, was to get out of town basically, because I had gone from uh, Notre Dame High School, which had uh, 60 kids in its graduating class to Syracuse University, which had 30,000 students. And right. it really was like going from in, in, you know, that scene in The Wizard of Oz where Dorothy opens the door and all of a sudden there's this technicolor world out there. And in 1970, that was certainly uh, my experience at Syracuse. So yeah, Elmira, Elmira was definitely Hicksville in that sense. You know, it was uh, in the in the winter time. You just got you just hunkered down with a six pack of beer with your buddies, and just kind of uh, you know hung out at their house or you know uh, that kind of thing, and just talked about what you were going to do when you left town. <laughs> that was that was how you passed a lot of time. Well, win winter is tough in Western New York, and for people who haven't been there, there's lake effects now, and basically there's long stretches in winter 
where, you know, the horizon and the sky are sort of the same color of sleet gray. And, you know, the snow has been on the ground for two months, mingling with exhaust fumes. And it just goes on and on. And it's a damp kind of cold. And you hear about it in people who go to Cornell, right? <laughs> because they're like, welcome to upstate New York. And the rest of the year, it is it can be just gorgeously beautiful. But winter is not does not show the southern tier at its best. Yeah, winter is <clears throat> winter is definitely the the season that sticks around for five months or six months of the year. It really, I mean, it, it can come in as early as uh, late October and stick around until March or even April. I mean, it's. You know, if if you're if you're prone to dark periods or depression or anything like that, uh, Central New York is not the place to live. And even uh, me in my uh, happy-go-lucky moments, <laughs> we always thought there has to be some place warmer and drier and with less snow and clouds than Central New York. So. so, so uh, that was that was that was what sort of drove me once I had my degree from Syracuse in journalism to go somewhere else. <laughs> so bef- be- I want to talk about S- Syracuse in just a minute, but oh sure, it's it's really part of the same mindset in a way. Sure. Okay. So h- how much do you feel like the Mark Bromberg that is here in 2021 owes a lot to Elmira, like in terms of who you are? At this point in your life, you spent 18 years there and you spent 40 plus years elsewhere. Do you feel like you carry a lot of Elmira still with you or do you feel like it's pretty far back? Uh, I carry a lot with me uh, in the sense that uh, my grounding is very, it's it's very, uh, I don't know how quite to say this, uh, that I can see through a lot of the BS and, you know, I try to ground myself in, I know, I know what's good for me and I know, uh, what's not good for me. And that definitely came out of being a kid in a small town. Um, I did do a lot of running around when I was, when I was growing up. Um, but yeah, my friends, for example, I find it really interesting that I never learned to smoke even though everybody else in my family did. And yeah, I mean, it was, mm-hmm. it was the thing, <clears throat> but none of my friends and I uh, uh, smoked, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, and, you know, in terms of a grounding going forward, um, I still carry a lot of that uh, small town, um, I don't want to say judgment thing, but it's definitely uh, a sense of right and wrong uh, that, that I sort of carry with me. And in that sense, I'm still I'm still the small town kid, <clears throat> even though I try to think of myself as, hey, you know, I've, I've really I've, I've done lots of things in my life and all this, but uh, uh, but I'm still that that kid from Elmira at heart. Sure. You know? So so Syracuse still had the the crazy snow or uh, lake effect winter snow stuff, but it was. I'm sure in a lot of ways, very different than Elmira. What was it like to go from Elmira to the 30,000 students at Syracuse University? This, this is a pretty interesting thing because <clears throat> at the politics at the same time were just going nutty. Um, the, uh, 
the student riots had happened at Columbia in New York uh, in 1969, 68, 69. And so by the time I got to Syracuse in the fall of 1970, the administration was so worried about uh, uh, Syracuse students taking over the, uh, uh, the administration building, for example, and all this, that by uh, April, very early April, maybe, maybe even April 1st, uh, in my freshman year, the administration said, okay, we're just gonna close down Syracuse and you're just gonna finish this year with the grades you've got on, you know, on such and such a date. And so as someone, as I said, who had come from a small Catholic high school to this technicolor universe of, you know, just, uh, you know, all this crazy stuff happening, um, that it was, it really was a, a whole different world. And then on April 1st, boom, the school year was over. And I thought to myself, wow, is this what college is like? This is terrific. You know, I mean, it, was so it was so different from Elmira. You know, sure. not not just the idea that, you know, at 18, you're kind of making your way in the world, even if it is on your parents' dime or, you know, you're supposed to be studying and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, there were there were free uh, concerts going on. Um, there were, uh, uh, you know, movies everywhere uh, you could. And, and don't forget it back then. Things were like, you know, you could go see a double feature for a dollar fifty or something like this, you know. And so sure. you just, you know, the, the world really was just sort of opened up. Uh, and and it wasn't like Elmira where you had, you know, five major streets. And after that, you know, like, where do you go for fun after that? Um, so, yeah, it was a totally different thing. It was a totally different experience. And you make new friends. And, uh, you know, it's just these... Uh, ever increasing circles of friendships and things to do. And, Hey, you know, you're into William Burroughs too, or, you know, someone says, have you ever heard Lou Reed? And, you know, or, you know, the, the, the cultural overlay was just uh, expanding uh, all the time, you know? And that was a really big, big, because you didn't hear these things in Elmira, you know, you, you know, you were stuck with AM radio you know, maybe the hip DJ on FM might play uh, 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 The Doors once in a while. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, college was a whole different universe. Yeah. College, is the, college is the place where, for the first time, if you're really into stuff, whatever that stuff is, film or music, it's the first place where you don't feel a little out of sorts because you get to college and everybody's into something, right? Maybe it's not the same, maybe it's not Lou Reed, you know, or whatever, but, sure. but they've, they've got their passions too. And having passions isn't considered weird. And I think that's true no matter whether you go to high school in a big city or a small city, but I can imagine that getting to Syracuse was a, was a breath of fresh air that way. And, and one of the, speaking of just technology uh, uh, in general too, uh, right at that point was when videotape and uh, multimedia started to happen, like in 1970. Uh, and so things, videotape, three-quarter to videotape in these cassettes, you know, the, sort of about the size of a computer, of a laptop computer. But, sure. uh, and then the port packs came in and it really freed up a lot of visual artists to start doing things. And Syracuse... If, 
was one of the first places that actually had a devoted uh, 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 area of study to uh, uh, visual uh, TV and radio arts for uh, videotaping and stuff like this. Uh, and it was called, uh, the, the, the uh, group was called Synapse. Uh, and three, <laughs> three quarter videotape uh, and all these artists would come in and they would do their videotapings and stuff like this. We had people, and this was in like 1971, 1972. Uh, Steve Reich. Uh, oh, sure. Uh, uh, Philip Glass. All these people would come in. Uh, Nam June Paik, uh, who would do these uh, uh, exhibits at uh, Everson Museum and then taped his shows at Syracuse University. And my uh, college roommate at the time, uh, Paul Doherty, uh, was right in the pocket. He was right there doing that kind of stuff um, uh, with those artists. And wow. so for me, it was a way to really, I mean, I was kind of in a ground floor on all of that videotape explosion that was happening in the uh, early 70s. Which is going to come into our story. It's going to come back into our story a little bit later. Uh, yeah. I I want to ask you about, you talked about the politics a little bit of being in school in the early 70s. And it makes me think about a movie that I'm sure you've seen, Shampoo. Oh, one of my favorites, really. So for people who don't know, Shampoo takes place uh, the night of, is it the, is it the, it's the 72 election, right? And so Nixon's getting reelected, I believe. It was the 68. Oh, it's the 68. Okay. Gotcha. Right, right. but that sense of, oh, my God, what a giant bummer. Like, you know, it's, it's funny that it's 68 because I keep telling people who think that 2020 is the worst year in a long time. I was telling them, compared, compared yeah. to 1968, and I think you'll find, uh, which was funny because both Tracy and I, our moms were pregnant with us throughout 1968, that, the challenging year of 68. But so tell me a little bit, does do, movies like Shampoo or are there other good movies that sort of capture that sense of like, Oh my God, things are not headed in the right direction. Well, there was, <clears throat> there was that period between like 68 and 1970 when uh, movies really started to uh, capture a lot of that. I hate to use the word counterculture, but it was definitely a whole new way of looking at the world. Uh, shampoo was one. Uh, uh, and it was funny. It was, a, it was just a, this wonderful take on politics that very few people had sort of taken before. And, right. uh, and that was, I think, Hal, Hal Ashby did that movie. Right. And, uh, uh, and then in 1969 was uh, Easy Rider, right. which kind of, you know, as they say, used to say, blew everyone's mind because it right. was just basically about uh, two guys on motorcycles going across the country and, you know, uh, seeing what kind of adventures they were going to have. <clears throat> and then by 1970, MASH came along, which was a, a thinly veiled parable uh, about Vietnam that was actually right. set in Korea. But everybody right. knew they were, you know, talking about Vietnam. And so, you know, it, it, those three movies, just for an example, in less than 24 months, just really <clears throat> set the tone for sure. that whole new way of looking at uh, uh, politics 
and the Nixon administration was, you know, in power and everybody <clears throat> was looking one way while the country was going in this other direction altogether. Sure. And combine that with going off to college and, uh, boy, oh boy, things were not your, you know, 1950s Joe college, rah, 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 uh, kind of thing at all. By the time I was, a uh, a sophomore at Syracuse, there was a sincere push to close down the, uh, uh, the fraternities and sororities because they were just so, they just seemed so out of date. Sure. But culturally speaking, yeah, all those movies from like 1968 to 1970 or 71 were just uh, literally mind expanding. And then you had 2001 <laughs> in 1968. That was just, I mean, if, if you're into science fiction, that took the that took everything into a whole other direction. So uh, it's hard to explain to people who uh, don't remember necessarily or weren't there how differently the late '60s uh, culture in the late '60s really just kind of exploded on the scene, and it was never the same since. Well, I remember my father telling me about. I don't think you were allowed to wear blue jeans to school. And so it was, you know, sort of scandalous if someone wore blue jeans to school, Absolutely. which is impossible to imagine today. Uh, when I was a, when I was a junior and senior at uh, Notre Dame, and this would have been in 1970, 69, 70, uh, <clears throat> the nuns would come along with a ruler and kind of brush up your hair in the back and mm -hmm. say, uh, that needs to be off the collar. And we need, you know, uh, and, and you need to get a haircut. Sure. And, uh, it's really, it's, it's hard to explain now, but that was, that was, that, that was what happened back then. So another thing in shampoo, that's an essential part of the story is how things were changing sexually in the late sixties and early seventies. And the sense oh, yeah. that the, the doors were just kicked wide open. Um, do you, you want to talk about that a little bit about going off to Syracuse? Oh, sure. Um, I was pretty closeted back in, uh, you know, uh, in 1969 or 1970. I don't think I'd had any gay, uh, uh, experiences at that point. Uh, but by the time I got to Syracuse and within the first, I would say six months or so, I would had my first fling, uh, and with, with, uh, a friend of mine who currently, I mean, we're still buddies all these many years later, and uh, we still talk about all that stuff back from when we were 18. Um, but it was uh, a whole different experience uh, in a lot of ways to go to Syracuse and realize that those restrictions that you felt in a small town were no longer there. Now, I will say there were gay bars in Elmira. Uh, really? Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, they were very low key, Sure. but uh, you know, you did, it wasn't, it wasn't anything like today where, you know, uh, there was no glass front, you know, it was, you sure. know, you have to go down this alleyway and around the corner and you know, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, uh, and uh, to actually go off to school and start having uh, sexual experiences, of course, I mean, every college kid, I think, goes through this uh, exploration phase. Uh, but it was it was kind of a blossoming thing 
for uh, gay rights too. I mean, uh, Stonewall had just happened in 1969 in New York. So that idea of, you know, anything being open or any kind of expression uh, of, of sexuality other than just straight uh, heteronormativity uh, was still pretty wild. I mean, you know, you didn't, there, the flamboyance was not really a thing on the Syracuse campus, but there were, there was the beginning of a student gay alliance kind of thing. Uh, that, I mean, it, it was still a challenge to, to meet up 30 people, you know, who happened to be gay would, you know, you, you meet up in this old ramshackle house on Comstock Avenue and, you know, actually talk about, the things in your life that you wouldn't sure. talk about on the street, for example, you know, sure. and as, as odd as that seems now, um, it's kind of like, uh, it's a, it was a, it was a very big deal back then, you know, part, sure. of, part of the revolution. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's interesting to try to put one's brain around is, you know, what's changed and what hasn't changed. I'll tell you that, uh, one of my kids had a roommate uh, in college who was gay and was not out to their family. And I mean, this is, you know, 2019, 2020, right? And they were very happy to be at a big school and very happy to be able to pursue their lives and not talk about it with their parents. And, you know, so it's like, you, we tend to think that with the advent of the internet, you know, I hear you talking about how do you meet people to even talk about what it's like to be uh, gay in 1970 or 1972. And you think, oh, well, that's all solved by the internet. But you do sort of wonder how much things have fundamentally changed. I think for a lot of people, there's there's these staggeringly large changes. And then there's things that having to do with families and people dynamics that maybe doesn't change so fast. But I don't know. Well, you know, uh, coming <clears throat> coming out to yourself is one aspect. Coming out to uh, your immediate circle, including your family, it, it's a whole nother sea of, of uh, possibilities and, and turmoil and sometimes uh, irreparable changes and stuff like this. And then just uh, coming out to the rest of the universe. That's, I mean, I, to me, I think one of the great things about culture these days is there is an annual like coming out day now, you know, mm. and it's a wonderful thing. And, you know, it's, you know, if you want to declare your gayness, you know, have at it. It's, it's just wonderful. And nobody really blinks an eye anymore. And now we have uh, Secretary Pete, uh, you know, in the Biden administration, you know, and everybody, no one's blinking an eye. And I'm like, wow, this is just to me in, in the span of one lifetime, it's just pretty amazing. So uh, yeah. one of the things I like, I love living on the West Coast and I love bragging about the things that are good on the West Coast and uh, a real national treasure. I, I consider Dan Savage a real national treasure because uh, <laughs> straight boys like myself can get to understand a lot more what life is like for gay friends and family by listening to Dan's podcast and, and his longstanding writing. You know, I knew him when, or I knew of him when he was just a, a writer at The Stranger here. And of course, now he's the grand poobah of The Stranger. And really, you know, everybody's, I don't want to say favorite gay uncle, because you're my favorite gay uncle. But, you know, he's, he has uh, brought a lot of uh, knowledge to the rest of the country because he's such an amazingly articulate uh, 
explainer of things and his whole It Gets Better campaign, for instance, I thought was just one of the most brilliant things of the last 20 years, in addition to his co-opting of the word Santorum. But maybe we'll move on from that to- uh... <laughs> I totally understand. Uh, but I do want to get back to, uh, to about Dan Savage is, yes, I, I think it really takes uh, certain individuals who kind of approach uh, explaining things or, or setting things out for a lot of people uh, who they, they may not understand what's going on. They may not quite, uh, you know, uh, uh, know what what this all signifies, for example. But and there are writers like that too. Uh, for uh, for a gay male, um, people like uh, Edmund White, uh, uh, back in the '60s and '70s was just this phenomenal uh, writer who, who broke down a lot of uh, walls in his fiction. And, uh, uh, and then there was uh, John Ricci uh, uh, who, did, uh, who did some fiction writing about San Francisco back in the 1960s. And if, if you read any kind of fiction at all, those two guys, for example, were sort of like, the, the two that kind of nudged open the door for people who wanted to read about contemporary uh, uh, gay issues uh, at the time, you know? And if you wanted to go deeper with that, you know, Christopher Isherwood, uh, who had written about Berlin in the 1930s and all this, who, and those stories became the basis for Cabaret, uh, the sure. movie Cabaret. So that was, that was an, an earlier set of writers and the scene happening. But yeah, you know, I think um, uh, cultural subsets sometimes need uh, a good explainer or at least an entertaining one. Uh, uh, Armistead Maupin, who, who did the Tales right. of the City, well, all about San Francisco. You know, if, if you can explain uh, uh, what's called a demimond, you know, a little like secret world, uh, to the world at large and make it seem less scary. Uh, I think that's a really important thing that happened in the 60s as well, 60s and 70s. So, so there, was an actual, there was an actual wave of fiction and nonfiction that was kind of uh, a good adjunct to the idea of coming out and being more accepting of uh, alternative cultures, you might say. So, so what stuff has... Uh, survived the, the, the turning of the, of the years? Like if you were gonna recommend, if somebody wanted to read something from that time now, Edmund White or John Ricci, is there anything you think would, has sort of stood the test of time that you could recommend? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of, you know, once it's now so broad, the, you know, the, the culture and the alternative cultures are so broad that you can sort of now um, sort of choose your own stream in a way. And it's like, okay, I'm really interested in this. So I'm going to uh, investigate mm -hmm. these books, but even something as, as uh, far reaching as like uh, Kate Millett, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, or uh, there was a, there uh, for lesbians, there was, you know, um, on our backs, and then the and then the follow up was off our backs. You know, uh, there was a there is a, a, 
there is a woman's bookstore in Atlanta called Karis Books, C-H-A-R-I-S. And, uh, uh, and you know, the idea, and, and there's a, a gay men's uh, bookstore too, uh, also in Midtown. Uh, but uh, the idea that, that you can actually just pop into a bookstore and, and, you know, browse at these hundreds and hundreds of books and, and, and choose one or two or you know, take 10, you know. Um, but these days, uh, other than, you know, the 60s and the 70s just seems so many miles away, you know, just culturally, that uh, the writers that I've mentioned, you know, the, Edmund White, for example, or Christopher Isherwood or uh, John Ricci, um, uh, it's kind of like, it, I know people in their fifties, forties and fifties who read these books now and they go, Oh, this is, Oh, this, this, this seems so, uh, creepy or so old, you know? Sure. Um, but then, you know, the, the real, the real, you know, serious cultural touchstones, you know, like James Baldwin, uh, mm -hmm. or, uh, um, you know, Giovanni's room. This, you know, that's sort of the books that were written in the 50s, 50s and 60s that uh, really opened up a lot of people's eyes to just the idea of gay fiction was uh, was a pretty astounding thing, too. Um, it's uh, uh, when I first moved to Atlanta, for example, in 1976, one of the uh, first people I met was uh, was this woman who had just come to Atlanta from uh, Ohio uh, and uh, was, you know, working at a restaurant and all this, but going to school as well. And um, she, she had a best friend, uh, Gil, and, and Gil and she were uh, on the, when I went to uh, rent a room uh, uh, at, at this uh, place that was advertised, um, Gil and Liz were uh, in the living room making signs for uh, First Tuesday, which is which was the political meeting group for uh, gay and lesbians. And huh. this is in 1976. Uh, you know, this was like uh, almost unheard of. You know, and there had been gay marches in Atlanta and stuff like this. Uh, where like a hundred people would get together and march down Peachtree Street, and then we and then we'd all get arrested. <laughs> so, yeah. The cops, the cops, the cops would 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 all would all uh, grab us together, and then we'd all go down to the jail and pay twenty five dollars, and then they'd release us. You know, um, but yeah, I mean it, that was nineteen seventy six in Atlanta, so it was it, that was even a, a a wilder scene than Syracuse. You know, so, it was just pretty. So I want to get there in just a second, but I want to I want yeah, to understand sure. how you go from graduating from Syracuse in the spring of 1976 to finding yourself in Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> oh, now there's a story all in itself. Uh, uh, I I had my uh, journalism degree from Syracuse, and I, as I told you, I I knew I had to get out of Elmira um, because otherwise. You know, uh, I was going to wind up third shift in a bottle factory. I mean, there was no future in Elmira. And uh, uh, and so it, it being 1976 and me being kind of a patriotic boy, uh, I decided to hitchhike around the country uh, and visit the original 13 colonies. 
I can't believe I'm, I'm saying this now, but this is what you could do back sure, then. Sure, why not? Yeah. So, so, so I packed up my old kit bag, <clears throat> probably a, an old knapsack, and uh, uh, got a ride. Got a ride to uh, uh, the biggest road out of Elmira I could find, which was Route 17, and uh, I hitchhiked around the country for I would say three months visiting people that I had known at Syracuse and just generally hopscouching uh, uh, down the East Coast through all the different states mm -hmm. um, and staying for a day or two and just kind of say, you know, saying, ah, you know, Hartford, Hartford, oh, wow. I mean, I was, uh, you know, rolling this stuff all in my mind, like mm -hmm. Boston. Oh, no, I don't want to go, no, I don't want to live in Boston. You know, that's, that's worse than Syracuse, you know, the weather and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, finally, I started getting to places like, ooh, Columbia, South Carolina. This is kind of nice. Like, you know, it's like it was by the, by the water, you know, and it was, you know, June. And it was just really beautiful, you know. And I'm starting to realize, ooh, I kind of like this southern thing where people were starting to be slower. And, you know, things, mm -hmm. things didn't happen all the time. Things just were not in this giant rush. And, uh and I wound up uh, uh, in Atlanta, actually in Forest Park, Georgia, visiting my friend Dan um, on July 4th, 1976. And you know, think about this from a political aspect. Jimmy Carter is, is now president <laughs> or about to be. Right. And, and, and Atlanta is, the old expression used to be a city on the go. <laughs> I mean, they couldn't spend yep. money fast enough to build buildings. And, you know, uh, the, the, the tallest building when I got there was, uh, I think, 31 stories. You know, the first National Bank building, and that was right downtown. Within two years, you know, uh, John Portman had started to build these, like, enormous hotels and convention centers and, you know, uh, uh, the Peachtree Center had like 71 stories to it, just this, this glass tower in the middle of town kind of thing. And so right. there was more money than people knew how to spend. And sure. at the same time, you know, culturally, for better or for worse, you know, uh, Burt Reynolds was, you know, in town. You know, all those Burt Reynolds movies were happening. And, you know, mm -hmm. there was this scene starting to develop where, uh, where all the financial things that make Atlanta what it is today, were really starting to happen. And so I just thought, oh my goodness. And then I walked into the uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, as, as they say, a cold call, just walked in one day in 1976 and said, basically, here's my degree from Syracuse University. Uh, what do you got for me? <laughs> and it worked. No, there was there was no calling ahead. There was no you know there was no you know six months of you know waiting for a phone call or you know, anything like this. And believe it or not, you could do that then. I mean, it was sure. it seems totally nuts now, but the idea of just hitting the pavement and walking into places with a with a degree in your pocket right. is kind of just something that you, you know uh, seems impossible now. But that's what happened. Of course, they, they put me in the circulation department, you know, answering calls sure. from 
you know, old ladies who had missed their newspaper. <laughs> it was it was a it was a big toe in the door, you know, and that's what I did. So I think it's important for any young people who hopefully there will be young people who listen to this podcast. I want to point out that even then, there's somehow this idea nowadays that, oh no, my college, my four-year college degree hasn't gotten me the life of, of fortune and fame that I thought it would. And I just want to point out that it never did, right? It got you a foot in the door. It got you talking to somebody rather than being, you know, sort of unceremoniously swept out the door. But, you know, you're it's not, not like you're, you're, not, you're not even just on the ground floor yet. You're in the lobby of a building talking to some woman who doesn't know or some person who doesn't know who the hell you are. And, and you have to at least say something more than, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it really is just a toe in the door. It really, you know, it's, it's absolutely. So I just want the young people to understand that it's always been a challenge to, to get your foot in the door and uh, sometimes showing up. I think that, I think the thing may partially be nowadays with the internet, you can blast your resume out to 200 newspapers in the space of an afternoon, or you use LinkedIn or whatever. And it's harder to differentiate. I mean, there is something to be said for walking in the front door and saying, hi, I'm Mark Bromberg, and I really want to work here, right? That says something different than, hi, here's an email. I'm this guy who lives 2,000 miles away, and you're one of 200 emails I sent out this week. And, and, and here are my requirements. I need this and this and this and this. And it's like, <laughs> it just does not work this way. And I'll tell you what, Tola, one of the saddest sights that brings that brought all this home to me was after I had worked in the TV station as a film editor for I mean, over 20 years. But, uh, you know, even by 2006, which was when I retired, you might say, after 20 years, uh, one of the saddest things that I used to see on a regular basis was you'd walk past uh, a, a fax machine, you know, fax machines or, you know, any kind of copier. And you'd see this pile of what turned out to be resumes from people that were just sending things out by telephone or, you know, mm -hmm. fax or, you know, here's, here's my resume, you know, hire me kind of stuff. And every day, you know, someone would, would pick up this pile of resumes that had collected at the bottom of a copier or something and just put them in the trash. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, that kind of, uh, of no sweat applying for a job or, you know, it just seemed uh, so wild to me. I was like, you know, the ease of a computer just to hit enter. And all of a sudden you've sent out your resume to, you know, 10 different places. Uh, just is it, it doesn't work. <laughs> it just does not work. So here's a question that I've always wanted to ask you. Uh, sure. Did you ever... Did after moving to Atlanta, did you ever wonder if you had made the right decision or that you should consider going back to New York? Never. And I'll tell you <laughs> why. I mean, and, and, I mean, there's there's a couple of good reasons why. But even by when I was in when I had moved to Atlanta, I was already 26, which, you know, to me seemed like a grand old age. But, you know, I instantly made all kinds of friends. Uh, the gay scene in Atlanta was just booming. I mean, it was, you know, Atlanta was the mecca for the entire Southeast, the, you know, the entire gay scene. And there were bars that didn't, that didn't have brick walls to them. 
you mean you mean you can see into a gay bar how that you know how unique you know you could actually do that and it was a 24-hour city more or less i mean you know it's a baptist city but you know you could definitely find partying whenever you wanted um and i already had i had friends in new york and i had friends in dc and i had you know friends elsewhere so the idea of going back to elmira was just not an option. I mean, I just couldn't see myself uh, basically stuffing myself back into that box anymore. Uh, not that I would have stuffed myself into a box, but I, I would have just found it uh, totally constricting. You know, oh, do we go? Do we go to this grocery store or do we go to this grocery store? You know, for our milk and you know bread. It just did not work. You know. So now tell me, you were 26 when you went to. Atlanta. There's four. Right. There's four years in there. Did you did you take time off during college? You didn't do the four year plan, or uh, in 1972, I took a year off to uh, to help clean up Elmira uh, during after the flood. Uh, plus, my grades <laughs> after two years of partying, my grades were not the best. Let's put it that way. Uh, uh, and so I decided to take a little sabbatical, and rather than run off to Europe or whatever kids did back then, uh, I, I stuck around Elmira and you know helped rehab the city after the flood of 1972. So there was a year there, uh, and uh, uh, so that pushed my actual graduation to 1975. So I kind of I came back to Elmira, uh, realizing that this was not going to be a good fit. I might have even gone down to the Star Gazette to see if if I wanted to work there in a newspaper, uh, but you know there was no money there, so it was just kind of like, well, we don't really have a place for you. Do you want to deliver papers? <laughs> it's like uh, <laughs> not really, um, you know, but that that. Uh, that bachelor of arts diploma was, you know, burning a hole in my pocket. So that's when I really started to formulate this idea that, man, I really got to get out of here. Uh, and, uh, so there was that, there was like a, a year of leisure, you might say in there where, where I kind of, uh, had to sort out my priorities. And then, as I said, 1976 came along and what a golden opportunity, see the country, stick out your thumb. And this was all done hitchhiking, by the way, you know, it right. wasn't done in a car. Uh, and ironically, uh, you'll get a kick out of this. The very first ride that I got out of Elmira was from uh, Mr. Horrigan, who happened to be the principal at Elmira Free Academy. Oh, my mother's alma mater. And his wife, yeah, and his wife, and they were in this giant Cadillac boat. And he actually stopped on Route 17 and picked me up. And he said, oh, you look like a strapping young fellow. What are you, what are you off to? And I said, well, I'm going to do this and this and this. He said, okay, well, you know, what's your name? And I said, Mark Brownberg. And he almost ran off the road. <laughs> <laughs> he turns to me and he says, <clears throat> very seriously, are you the brother of Richard and Stephen Brownberg? <laughs> Just like that. I have to stop the interview just for a second here and explain that my uncles Rick and Steve were troublemakers of the highest order. Rick, the old-time kind of troublemaker, and Steve, more the sneaky kind. Absolutely the terrors of Elmira, New York. A whole bunch of heart attacks slowed Rick down in his old age, 
but Steve is a troublemaker still. Yeah, <laughs> I know. The very, my very first <laughs> ride on my, on my, you know, I'm going to conquer the universe. And the very right. first person that picks me up says, you're the brother of Rick and Steve Bromberg? Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, I am. And he said, you didn't go to, a, you didn't go to Elmira Free Academy, did you? And I said, no, I went to Notre Dame. And the very first thing he says is, that was a wise choice. <laughs> that was a wise choice. I couldn't have picked a better first ride mm-hmm. than the principal of the school that, that my three older siblings had gone to. He did mm-hmm. wind up saying, Joan was wonderful. <laughs> Joan was really, was really just an angel. And the implication being, what happened to your brother? But I mean, uh, we actually, we actually, we stopped off. He said he didn't, he didn't know what, where I was going and neither did I really, because I was hitchhiking. So he and his wife treated me to lunch. Oh. <laughs> My very first ride, I got a lunch out of the deal. Uh, and we talked about going to Notre Dame and, you know, what I was going to do with my life and all this kind of stuff. And he had sure. some great stories about Rick and Steve. And I thought, wow, this, this is this is going to be a really unusual period in my life. And it was. Yeah. So for three months, I was actually on the road uh, hitchhiking around around the East Coast. And I never slept outside uh, on the road uh, more than once. Uh, you know, sometimes you're in the middle of nowhere, or you can be in the middle of nowhere, and no one will pick you up. Sure. And luckily, it was a nice night, and I mean, it didn't rain or anything. I just kind of curled up and went to sleep, and then in the morning, somebody picked me up within ten minutes. Nice. So but yeah, I thought you enjoy that story about Rick yeah. And <laughs> yeah. And literally, the the first person here you are. You're, you're going to right. Yeah. You're going to go out. You're going to blaze your own trail across the universe and the first thing is right. you're, I'm going to run into all these wonderful people who have I can make up my own story right the very first people that pick me up are, are Rick and Steve your brothers <laughs> I definitely knew I had to get out then yeah absolutely I was I kind of forgotten that story but that was hilarious yeah well I love that you never looked back in terms of uh being happy in Atlanta and we could, oh, and, we, yeah, and, and we could talk a lot about Atlanta, but I, I want to make sure we get to talking about. You don't live in Atlanta anymore, so you you did no. the Atlanta thing for the better part of thirty years, right? Even more, almost thirty five. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so and, 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 tell tell me about that about the the deciding not to live in Atlanta anymore. Right. Well, I. I had owned a house for almost 20 years. And uh, by the time it, uh, 1996 came along, 2009, excuse me, came along, uh, the neighborhood that I had my house in was just kind of getting overrun. I mean, it was just getting way too crowded and the, the traffic was nuts. And I had put all this money in the house to rehab it in, in the hopes of selling it at some point. And, you know, 2008 was kind of the start of the big crash. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I put my, I put my house on the market uh, in hopes, hopes of getting some kind of money out of it. And I did. Um, but, but even then 
it was like, okay, now that I'm going to sell the house and uh, I'm not going to stay in Atlanta, what do I want to do? And I had been going to, uh, I'd been going to Tucson with HUD on some of his gem and mineral shows. My, you know, my ex-brother-in-law. Uh, so my, my, my father, HUD Martz. Yep. And your dad. And, uh, and I loved Tucson. Tucson in February. Let's make it clear. Tucson in February, <clears throat> 80 degrees, crystal blue skies, jacuzzis, you know, pools the size of, you know, Montana. And, you know, just and a wonderful scene. And everybody's there making money with like gems and minerals. And there's all kinds of money flowing around at parties. And I thought, wow, this is, this is, I, I was really taken in that direction. Like, oh, wow, I could really, I'd really dig living in Tucson. But I had never spent a summer there. <laughs> and so Wait, just, now it's different. It's different in summer than it is. Yeah, different. you know, it's 110 degrees for three weeks, kind of thing. Uh, and and I really toyed with the idea of moving to Tucson. I got great friends there. Did, did all that. Just a wonderful time. Uh, and then I realized it's like, well, you know, I've been. I've been seeing all of these bands from Athens and I'd been seeing all of these, you know, all these wonderful people from Athens and coming to Athens, Georgia, all, you know, for almost 35 years and, and uh, knew some of the people in the scene and all this. And it just suddenly dawned on me that, you know, a move to Athens would probably be a lot easier than moving 2,000 miles to Tucson, uh, you know, in the dry desert and everything. I love the Sonoran Desert and all this, but I had a feeling that I would have missed all the greenery and, you know, the rainstorms and, the, you know, and all the wonderful uh, lush vegetation that's here in the south. Uh, and, I, and most of my connections are here in the, you know, Athens, Atlanta area too. And so uh, after I had spent uh, six months, nine months, really going back to visit Rick in Elmira uh, after I had sold my house, I realized, oh, I, I, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to start heading to Atlanta, to Athens uh, more often than Atlanta. And as luck would have it, I started hanging out with these poets here in Athens, Georgia. Once a month, they had a, an open mic. And I would take the bus from Atlanta when I moved back to Atlanta for a minute. Uh, I took a bus to Athens, uh, did poetry readings, spent the night at the Hilton Hotel kind of thing, and then took the bus back to Atlanta. And at one point, the leader of the poetry group said, so when are you moving to Athens? <laughs> did, you know, sometimes it takes a smack upside the head, like you should move to Athens. And within like two months, one of my poetry friends said, hey, I've got this house that you might, I just signed the lease, but my boyfriend and I are going to move in together out in Watkinsville. Do you want to assume the lease? And so that's how I wound up here in, uh, on Holly Street. And that was 2013, 2012, excuse me. 2012. Oh my gosh, eight, not almost nine years ago. Yeah. Now. I, years I have ago. I have to say around that time and the time that you were spending uh, more time doing poetry is one of my favorite memories, which was 2008, as you and I know, but our audience does not know, is when is the year my mom died of cancer. But yeah. just, just before that, 
you had one of your poems read on Prairie Home Companion. And yes, absolutely. All of us, a bunch of us sitting around in my mom's living room. And at this point, she's been sick, I think, for a year out of the 16 months that she, uh, that she lived with cancer. But all of us sitting, listening to National Public Radio, listening to Prairie Home Companion, hearing your poem get read is just absolutely positively one of the finest moments I have of my mom's last decade. So that you and, and I have to say, I have to say, Tola, me too, because that turned out to be really my last memory of Joan, uh, you know, together. Because I went back, I came back to Georgia after that, and I would say within a month, maybe six weeks, she had passed away. So yeah. that was definitely that that moment in time is really encapsulated to me, like in amber. You know, it's just kind of it's, that's a pretty special moment there for me too. And it was for her because you know, in those last few months, her energy level would ebb and flow. So people would come to visit, and you know, when they first got there, she'd have a lot of energy, and then it would slowly have less energy. And and uh, but that moment was was as excited as I have seen as I saw her during that whole last six months. So, so it's and great. She was definitely playing, and I have to say this because I love my sister so dearly. She was also, because she had that energy level, and, uh, you know, and she was really putting her all into it. The idea, she was playing the Pasha of, of the whole scene. I can't, she, she's on the couch and she's got her legs tucked up underneath her, or, you know, she's, she's kind of putting, putting her all of her energy into this kind of performance and, and, and a wonderful performance it was, you know, she's just like the, the family's around her and we're going to have this little moment with Garrison Keeler, you know, this, this mm -hmm. whole thing. We might've had, maybe I might've had a scotch or two. I mean, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and it was definitely a scene. Uh, and she was, she was in the moment and of the moment and she was making it, you know, it was really a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. And so it's exciting to hear that that moment is kind of related to this whole journey from Atlanta to Athens, right? And you've oh, continued oh, to be very, you've continued to be very active in the poetry scene in Athens, right? Right. Uh, I, I helped put together uh, the group's uh, anthology book, and I'm currently wrapping up uh, the poetry book for uh, Athens oldest poet, you might say. He's 91 years old, and he's written three previous books of poetry, and uh, I've helped Shepard putting together his fourth book of poetry, and that's going to be out, I think, within a month, and it's Beautiful. through a publisher out in uh, Portland. Oh, great. So it's kind of, it's, you know, the saga continues, you know. We're going to, once COVID lifts, we hope, he'll be doing, uh, you know, readings and stuff like this, but uh, it's been it's been a year of my life. The, la the last COVID year has been spent putting this like 150 page book together, uh, going through uh, 230 poems, selecting 70 of them and, you know, getting the book out the door. And it's going to be available within a couple within probably a couple of weeks. Wow. So, yeah. Congratulations. Continue. Thanks a lot. Yeah. And they spelled my name right, which is wonderful. Nice. <laughs> it's always good. To, it's always good to have your name spelled right. Uh, you know, in the editing process, just uh, you know, make sure that, that the checks go to the right place. Nice.
You mean with B-E-R-G, not B-U-R-G? Exactly. Yep. Yeah, which has always been, you know, uh, I don't. You may or may not get the same thing with a name like Tolomarts, but I'm sure you you get you get that occasionally. Like, okay, now how do you spell that? And even if even if you spell it, you know, two or three times, the next time you see it in print, it's, well, oh, they got my name wrong. <laughs> you know, or, you know, you've, you've been telling people that this is going to happen and, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's kind of like a big deal for you. And, you know, I mean, it, 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 even in your political wrongs, you know, mm-hmm. it's just kind of like, oh, hey, it is, you know, my name's going to be in the paper, da, da, da. you know, please spell my name right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although that's, that's better nowadays. I was going to say, it's a, it's a big thing. And, you know, I wish we all had names like, you know, Jim Smith, but we don't. <laughs> but, but, you know, the flip side to that is uh, I never worry that if I haven't heard from someone, I never worry that it's because they can't get a hold of me. Like anybody who knew me in high school, if they want to find Tola Martz, I'm really, really easy to find. Right. If you are a Jim Smith. Say, that is one of the hallmarks of your name is it's it is it is you i mean there there are not you, you know doing a google search for your name it's like boom and then it's like and then the thing at the, the blue line at the bottom there don't just seem to be any other great matches for tola march <laughs> like, that has to <laughs> no no there's not yeah a so, little bit of a family story yeah. one, one more quick family story sure you and i are both doing uh, uh like little family research uh you are not the, in a way, you are not the only Tola in the family. I back have no in, idea. Yes. Back in like 1785, uh, one of, one of uh, Grandpa Stanley's uh, uh, ancestors uh, way back when um, was uh, Anatole, mm-hmm. Anatole uh, Bromberg. And in a little town in uh, in Poland, and uh, even on even on the baptismal record that I happen to see mm-hmm. through uh, the cousin in New Jersey, uh, there's a there's a uh, parentheses, and it's uh, uh, Anatole, but then it's also spelled T O L A. I had no idea. That is hilarious. Yeah, I know. That's great. So it's like Anthony Anatole. You know, Anatole is is like is Mm -hmm. is the variant of Anthony. And for that to be such a wide connection, I just thought you'd really enjoy that. You know, that's awesome. And of course, my dad chose the name because he knew a guy in high school that was named Tola, and he he and my mother thought it was a great name. And so I I always meant to ask you how that happened. So that's interesting enough too. Yeah. Yep. Wonderful. They they went through his high school yearbook and they found Tola as a name, and it was probably Tolia. It was probably short for Anatoly, but he was a Polish guy that was a friend of my dad's, and uh, they both. This being late 1968, my parents said, "Let's name him Tola." That's great. So. And then you wound up with is it your is it your grandfather's name in the middle, Sawyer, or it's, it's also hard. Hudson. Yeah, the Hudson name comes oh, from... Oh, you're, you're, you're Hudson. That's right. That's right. Tola Hudson Martz. Yeah. The Hudson name comes down from the Reverend Hudson Sawyer, which my father's first and middle name is Hudson Sawyer. And he was 
my father's grandmother's father, and he was a main cavalry officer in the Civil War. And wow. after the and after the war, he became an ordained Epis- Episcopal minister, and he built churches in Maine and later in Kansas, where where he spent the latter part of his life. So, uh, yeah, so that's that's where the that's where the Hudson comes from. And my son is Aiden Hudson Martz, and my brother's son is James Hudson Martz. So we carry the oh. we carry the. So family. you're really carrying on the tradition there. What we that's just are. Yeah. yeah. So so uh, I want to I want to uh, try to put these conversations into a, a grand. Uh, over overarching theme, which is there is some debate. When I said I was going to do a, a podcast on you know how on where we live and how it influences who we become, I had people who say it has no influence. I reject your I reject your hypothesis in in complete. We are yeah. we are, and I have I have a friend that I'm going to interview because he he rejects the entire hypothesis. But I want to ask you if to what to what extent when you look at yourself and you see uh, Elmira, Syracuse, Atlanta, Athens. To what extent do you think living in those places has influenced who you are today? If you had grown up in Hawaii and gone to school at UC Berkeley and had lived for 30 years in Los Angeles and retired to Redding, California, would you still be the Mark Bromberg who loves poetry? I mean, I, I, want, I don't want to ask it that, in that simplistic of a method, but to what extent do you think you have been shaped by the places you've lived? Oh, entirely. Uh, you know, um, it's, as you and I have talked before, you know, I'm kind of a private person. And I realize that, uh, because I'm the fourth of five kids and I was a loner from the beginning, the idea of, uh, uh, of being who I am through the reading and the literature and the writing and poetry and stuff like this, it was a pretty, I'm a pretty self-constructed guy. Uh, you know, I did the college thing. That was cool. Uh, you know, I did the, you know, uh, the, the pretty wild gay lifestyle thing in Atlanta and all this kind of stuff. But all in all, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pretty private person. And mm-hmm. uh, that comes straight out of uh, the no BS uh, upbringing that I got with Rick and Steve and Joan. I mean, you, you have to, you can't, you can't put any BS past Rick, Steve, or Joan, as you well know. Uh, right. And so it's just kind of like uh, that's who I still am. And I, I sort of have kept to those ideas uh, now that I'm uh, almost 70. I'm going to be 70 uh, in uh, 2022. <laughs> I had to think about that one for a second. And that's it's not frightening as much as it is. Wow. That sure was quick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and- and and I'm still you know I'm still walking around and you know not not taking not taking any medicines and stuff and it's all it's all just sailing along, and I have to say that's that's part of making my way uh, 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 from Elmira to Athens sort of uh, on my own in a way you know having sure. fun uh, doing a lot of writing 
being kind of being kind of like their crazy gay uncle <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to a bunch of wonderful people, and uh, I've really had a wonderful time. The, the 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 fun gay uncle. I just I think of you as the uncle who always sent me these great mixtapes every year. You just sent me all yeah. the cool new music. And, for the day, weren't they? Yeah. and and although my mother was also really into music, in fact, yes, I would probably say all the Brombergs are are into music. But you and my mom, in in particular, but you had different tastes. So it was really it was good to and get. I, I, I miss that. I miss that about not having your mom around because. Uh, uh, the idea of, you know, hey, how, have you heard the latest Brian Ferry or have you heard the latest, you know, da 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 or this or that? Or sometimes, uh, you know, she'd just send me stuff in the mail and I was like, wow, I didn't know that, you know, or I have never heard of this person or that person. Uh, and she had that very good uh, uh, Minnesota angle, too. You know, a lot of a lot of those bands from the heart of the country, like the suburbs, and mm -hmm. the and, Bob Mould. Uh, Bob Mould was even, another Twin Cities person. Yeah, even Prince, which you right. know, when when we went when we went to Prince's yard sale in Chanhassen, <laughs> you know, that was a totally like unexpected, out of the blue. Hey, we're going to go to a yard sale today. Okay, you know, <laughs> and we wind up going going to the big White House, you know, and and seeing yeah. people wheeling out mellotrons and stuff. <laughs> Pretty wild stuff yeah 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 i mean i think but it was definitely you and and your mom turning me on to prince and that whole you know that, that whole genre and the time mm -hmm. i still have cds of the time that i remember you were like you know oh yeah morris day <laughs> that's the one yeah it was really good that kind of stuff so yeah, it's it's funny how these threads go across the generations and you know in a family. So I really mm -hmm. really appreciated that too. Well, I think we've reached a good stopping point for this conversation. Uh, this is the first interview I've done for this podcast, and I just have to tell you, thank you so much. It went, I think, <laughs> modestly, really well in terms of. The things that I wanted to good, um, you know, in terms of uh, getting the conversation to some interesting topics that folks listening uh, wouldn't necessarily know. I'm probably going to go back in and put in some, you know, little comments at various points, uh, like explaining a little bit about Steve and Rick and how being compared to Steve and Rick uh, with a little context on that. Um, so that people sure. understand where we're going there. But uh, this really, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with how this went today. And I want to thank you so much for, for doing this interview. You've, you've set the bar. And now uh, all the interviews afterwards, I'm going to have to get to nuggets of truth with people uh, because we did in, in this conversation as well. Glad to help, Tola. And uh, when do I get my free t-shirt? <laughs> as soon as I have them. As soon as I have them. Well, you've done it. You've reached the end of the first Hometown Podcast. Please feel free to drop me a line and let me know what you think of it. Before we go, first and foremost, a giant heartfelt thank you to Mark Bromberg, my poet uncle down in Athens, Georgia. He was a great guest and made it all sound easy. Thanks also to Guy Ellis for creating our theme music. I've got info on his music projects on the podcast page. 
And finally, a big thank you to my wife Tracy and my kids Sophie and Nate. There's no finer fan club to be found anywhere. Hometown will return with another interview soon.